I am Adam Rosted, the host of Madison Story Slam, and this is the Madison Story Slam podcast. But of course, you know that. You clicked on the episode. You know what you're doing with your phone or tablet or computer or what have you. Hey, uh, today's guest is Michelle Wilgen. She's a local author. She wrote a book called You're Not You and a few others, but we focus mainly on that one because it just got turned into a movie starring Hilary Swank. So that will be us at JPH. We talk about a lot of things. Uh, just want to let you know, Story Slam theme puberty uh, is January 30th. That's Friday, January 30th at Johnson Public House. And then I also want to say a quick thanks to Lunar Box. They designed our website. That's L-U-N-A-R-B-O-X-X dot C-O. Go to them if you need a website. They're great. Anyway, here's Michelle and I at Johnson Public House. sign up it would be great if people would sign up beforehand but uh, usually by the time we start we have like one person signed up Mm -hmm. and then so I'll get up right away and tell a story hopefully it has to do with the theme Mm -hmm. and then that one person will tell a story and then I always say that it takes people the liquid courage of drinking a couple beers yeah and then also um, I think I said this in the Cap Times article that they wrote uh, good storytelling breeds good storytelling right you hear people tell stories and you're like, I could do this. And then it also kind of like brings up in your head like, oh, hey, remember that one time? Like, mm-hmm. I could totally tell a story about that. What's the next theme? Puberty. <laughs> yeah, so I'll be there. That should be Hopefully fun. a lot of it's good stories. Last Friday in January? Yeah, January 30th. I want to make sure I have it in there. Yeah. I always feel like a lush because I always have a beer when I do this. And most of my guests are like, no, I don't want beer. I want beer, but it's the afternoon and I have to go pick up my kid. You oh, know. sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's never a question of not wanting. Yeah. Uh, where do your kids go to school? I just have one. Um, oh, one. She's three. So she spends, um, today she's hanging with my parents, which I kind of force them into a sure. couple days a week. And then the other rest of the time she goes to St. Bernard, actually, where Gwen's kids go. Okay. Our kid. Yeah. Um, are you are you from Madison originally? Well, no. Um, I grew up in Ohio okay. and actually had started college somewhere else. And then my dad got transferred here for a job. So my parents moved here. Sure. I came to Madison uh, Christmas break of freshman year. And I was like, oh, this is much better and so I transferred yeah um, and so it's sort of my adopted hometown even sure. though I was gone for a while and I came back it was your freshman year yep of college or college, you say college. Yeah. okay so it was yeah definitely kind of an adoption kind of thing yeah and do you still have any connection uh, you said Ohio yeah it's Ohio I mean I have personal connections because I lived only there for like you know the first 18 years of my life yeah and um, so there are people that I'm still close to that I've known since I was five sure but um, I always felt like it was sort of a suburb of nothing and there was there was no real sense of setting or place to me. I mean Cleveland had it and people make fun of Cleveland but it actually has a fair amount of character. But sure. when I came to Madison that was what I liked about it was I felt like this is an actual place. This feels like a specific place. Yeah. Yeah. Um Okay, so here we are with Michelle Wilgen. Welcome to Hello. the podcast, the Madison Story Slam. Um, as always, we're at JPH, and they're open, so you're going to hear some noise and some people talking. But we've got microphones, so we can be louder than them. Um, Michelle is an author. Um, the only, I'm sorry, the only uh, book I know the title of for sure is You're Not You. Yep. But is there one or two more? Two others. Okay. Um, You're Not You is my first book. Okay. And then my second book um, was called but not for long and we have a running joke that my third book was just going to be called No because it's just very negative um, but in fact my third book is called Bread and Butter okay. and then I edited an anthology of food and drink writing as well that's called Food and Booze oh 
And food and booze, is it, I mean, what is a food and drink anthology? Well, um, I work for a literary magazine called mm-hmm. Tin House, and we have food and drink writing in there that's sort of literary um, stories about any kind of food and drink or food and drink in literature and literary sure. life. And so in this case, we just gathered them together or asked all of our favorite writers to tell us a story about food. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Michelle, you are part of the Madison Writers Studio. Yes. Which you started with Susanna Daniel. Yes. Right? And Tell us about what that is. Well, you know, the, the joke that Susanna and I have is actually very true, which is that she told us, we were in a writing group together, a novelist group, and years ago she was like, you know, other cities, like Brooklyn has Sackett Street Writers, and Minneapolis has, I think, the Story Loft or something like that, or Story Space. Um, and she said, Madison needs this. We need some place where you can get really good writing workshops without having to enroll in UW, and you and I are going to do this. And for years I was like, yeah, 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 Susanna, we'll totally do it one of these days. (laughs) And um, then finally about a year ago, I think we had decided that we would get started on our next books, and once we were really ingrained in the next books, like that's when we would start it. And then we felt like, if we wait for that, we'll never do it, so let's just go ahead and start it. And so um, we started our first classes in 2013, and this is the second year, and we just do a whole variety, and we kind of offer different things and see what gets, you know, what gets the interest. Yeah. And that way we, we're really flexible. We can kind of do whatever we want, whatever the market seems to want. Sure. So is it just classes or like do you offer like a space for people to come and just write? Right like now it's... Kind of quiet yeah, space. If only. We need that for ourselves. Yeah. Um, they're just classes. Okay. And the way we can do it is that we have no real overhead or very little overhead because <laughs> we hold them like around our kitchen tables. Okay. And um, I moved mine to my living room. But the other kind of joy about that is that it's really intimate and it's really relaxed. So it's hard to feel intimidated when you have come into your teacher's home and you're all just kind of sitting around a table together. Yeah. Um... So, what are your, I don't know, credentials? Uh, Who are you? Really? You know, like I mean, uh, I mean, I don't want to come across come across as rude. I know, you know, you're a, an author, um, and you've had bo- books published. But I would imagine, like, if I saw the flyer that you gave me, mm-hmm. I'd be like, well, who are you to offer me a class? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, where did you go to school or mm-hmm. what have you? Well, Susanna went to the Iowa Writers Workshop and for undergrad to Columbia. Um, for undergrad here, I went to Madison, yeah. and then I went to Sarah Lawrence for my MFA. I've been an editor with Tin House Magazine, which is a pretty top-tier literary magazine for yeah. about 14 years now. Sure. And worked my way up from intern to executive editor, um, which included a stint as books editor in there as well. And so um, the editorial guidance is a lot. You know, that means that I've spent 15 years basically just working on making people's fiction and nonfiction better. Sure. Um, the cool thing about the teaching is that I feel like it makes me a better editor. The editing makes me a better teacher. Being, yeah. you know, having to articulate all these things that Susanna and I have to do as writers all of the time helps a lot. Um, and but you know none of that guarantees that you're a good teacher. But I feel pretty confident that we are based on what our students are saying. You yeah. Know, we routinely have students say, "I've never learned more than I did in this class." And so well, that's good. I mean, that's going to be really uh, encouraging. Yeah. Definitely. You know, like I know, like for me, this is totally opposite. It's not a class, whatever. But with the podcast, like seeing um, the work that I put in pay off. Off, like makes me want to keep doing it. So like I would imagine students being like, "Hey, this is helping me." Yeah. Like, and, okay, well, I want to keep doing this. And getting excited about it. Yeah. Because people come in with really no idea. Um, a lot of people say like, "I'm interested in writing, but I haven't done it in a long time. I'm a complete novice, you sure. know, or, or whatever." And they don't know what there is to learn, and 
they're not sure what this will entail. And I think they get really excited, a little overwhelmed too, because there's a lot to learn. Yeah. But you get excited at getting kind of proficient at it, and you sure. start to see how how interesting it can be. Yeah. So what's the writer scene like in Madison? Um, you know, I've interviewed a couple authors so far on the podcast. My last guest was a guy named Jim Birkenstadt, mm-hmm. who is a Beatles historian. He's a music historian, but has most of his books have been about the Beatles. He's got one. Um, that's about Nirvana. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not been like a fiction. It, it was just, you know, talking about stuff that actually happened. So, But I wonder, um, what's it like in Madison? Because I, I figure with the college, mm-hmm. with UW-Madison, we probably have a lot of people writing here. But I, I wonder, I, I couldn't name any of them is my point, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, it's an interesting scene. I mean, it's definitely been growing a lot in the last few years. I felt like suddenly half the people I, I knew who had been interested in writing were now actually publishing books and sure. doing pretty well at it. Um, you know, for me, I went through the um, UW creative writing department, so I feel pretty connected to them yeah. um, because some of those teachers are still there, and there's some pretty amazing writers in there. Um, Judith Claire Mitchell is a writer who has a book coming out in just a couple of months, and you're going to be hearing about that. That's, yeah. It's going to be a big book. It's a great book. Um, and then there is uh, Melissa Falconfield is another friend of mine who has her first book coming out. So, I mean, and that's just like among my immediate acquaintance. Sure. You know, Susan Gloss Parsons is out there with a great book on vintage. You know, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of, um, there's just a lot of people writing different stuff. People sure. who are writing either kind of straight up sort of commercial, what you might call women's fiction, or people doing more complicated literary stuff. Um, it's kind of surprising to me that in a town of this size, I run into people who are actually publishing. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, is it are people in Madison mostly self-publishing, or are they being published through you know like Penguin Books or you know, all the ones that I just listed are being published by major publishers? Okay, so I'm sure there are people who are self-publishing too, but I yeah. can't pretend to know very much about that. To be honest, sure. Have you not uh, done it at all? I haven't. No. no. Yeah. And is that is that luck? Or, uh, not luck. I mean, it's talent. Um, it's talent and it's work. You can have all the talent yeah. in the world, but if you're not going to work, it's not going to matter. Yeah. Uh, I you know. My knowledge of writing is is very uh, minimal, but I do know, like I know a few writers who say I've been rejected from every place over and over and over again, and I'm always like, why do you do it? <laughs> like, why, why? Yeah, it, it's why? like going up and asking somebody out on a date three times <laughs> in one day no. and for a week, yeah. you know, and yeah. it's like, why, why keep doing it? I think you do it because you love the writing. Publishing is really hard. Sure. And publishing is no fun. It's the business end of, you know, like that's where you have to go to work. Whereas before you were having a lot of fun doing the creation and it's like fun work, even though it is really hard. Yeah. And, um, you know, publishing is really tricky because it's such, um, there are so many numbers, so many people are trying to get into this little teeny space Sure. that it's only natural that as people started to say, okay, so let's, let's have more spaces, you know, then everybody's, I think they've gotten more places to do this and self-publishing is at least an answer to that. Like I've known people who did not have any luck with a traditional publisher and they were able to at least say, you know what? I want to have this object. I want to create the object because I wrote the damn novel. Yeah. And I want to be able yeah. to say to my friends here, you can have it. You can buy this 
just if you want. And it depends on what you want out of self-publishing, too. Sure. Whether it's worth it to you or not. But um, there's an element of luck in the way that there isn't any job. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. People think that it's like, oh, you know, it's it's lightning striking, but it's an industry. Everybody is working. So networking does help. It helps you stand out from the crowd of 6,000 people. Sure. Um, From somebody who's on the editorial side, I do tend to think that talent rises, you know, that good work will rise to the top. But I also know from doing this for so long that, like, even great work, we pass on great work all the time because it's not right for us. Sometimes sure. you have to find it, you know, the, the magazine that has the voice that your stuff fits in. Yeah. And it can be hard to find that, you know. And my students are like, where should I send? I'm like, oh, my God, that is so much work just to figure out where to send right there. And yeah. so I think it's all of those things. that The fact that it's hard to create something from nothing and it's hard to do it well and it's hard to find just the right people who are going to fall in love with it. That's, I think, why it's also See, that's tricky. the thing, like... You could write, a, you know, a technically great book as far as the te- technical side of it, and for for millions of people, it could be a great book for them emotionally, and they'd really feel tied to it. But if you send it to somebody who just doesn't feel that connection with it, yeah, it's the, like the luck of the draw, totally. There totally is, and that's hopefully what an agent helps with is some sense of like this editor seems to like this kind of thing, and they should have some yeah. knowledge of that. But um, the thing that I think helps when you're feeling completely down about your writing and like, oh my God, I work so hard and people still don't care is that like people don't agree, kind of like what you're saying, people don't agree on whether Hemingway is any good. Sure. You know what I mean? So not to compare myself to Hemingway ever, but I just feel like, okay, it helps. It helps to know that even a writer who I think is just objectively great by any standard, some people hate his stuff. Yeah. You know? And so that gets you through one sleepless night. Sure. At least. Yeah. Um, So... I uh, t- tell me to to shut up if you want, but like, and you don't even have to talk about you specifically. But uh, I know people who would. I know people who assume anybody who has a name who's known is wealthy beyond imagine. And I know writers who are poor and and are not, not well known writers, but I mean. You can go into Barnes and Noble and buy their book, and several people do, but they're poor, mm-hmm. and and so you know I think a lot of people, a lot, a lot of aspiring writers are like, I just need one book on the New York Times bestselling list, and I'm well, set for well, life. We all need that, right? Right? <laughs> yeah. But but even then, it's not. It doesn't mean you're set for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of publishing deals, as far as my knowledge goes, kind of suck a lot, mm-hmm. and and you're not seeing a lot of money. Um, so even that, I'm like, man, why go? Why be a writer? And I guess you got to really, really love it. Like that's really what it has to come down to. Yeah, I think you have to love the process of the writing. Um, when I was first, um, I started going to like a writing camp when I was in my teens. And one of the first things they said was to a bunch of like 15 year olds, they were like, if you're under the impression that this will make you rich and famous, like just forget it. It won't. If you think it's really fun, wonderful, then do it. But it won't make you rich. And so I was sort of freed from that delusion sure. that it was failure not to make a living from writing. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think I understand it when people are like, you know what, this I just don't want to do this. Other things are taking my time. Other things are more remunerative or more satisfying, and I'm just not getting out of it. Yeah. But sometimes I think if you've been interested in, in writing enough to have been doing it for a while, you'll probably come back to it. Sure. Um, even if you don't publish, even if you don't even try, you probably will find that that practice is satisfying. Mm-hmm. But um, last year, and I do this now and again, I'll 
be asked to like show up and talk to college students about the writing and the publishing life and yeah. just to give them an idea. And so last year I did um, a little mini part of my presentation in which I broke down like in advance and how long it takes to get it and the portions in which you get it. Sure. And um, what you give to your agent and what you give to taxes. And basically the subtitle of this was, here's why you don't quit your job when you sell your book. Sure. Because you're not going to live on it. You're going to starve. You know? <laughs> um, and when you think about like how much money it takes just to live a regular life, yeah. then you realize that that chunk, even if you get a decent advance, it's gone. It's gone fast. Very fast. Um, so people don't realize that. They think, you know, they, they don't know how the business works and why would they? You yeah. know, you don't, I don't know how other businesses work that I'm not in. So sure. I don't expect them to, but it can get a little frustrating constantly bringing people's um, expectations down to reality when they're like, you know, your life must be perfect. And like, yeah, let's bring that down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, um, cause how does an advance work? Well, cause if, if my ignorant assumption is you get a certain amount of money mm-hmm. and they're expecting that you're going to sell a certain amount of books mm-hmm. and it, and is it if you don't hit that mark you got to give that money back or no, some thank of that God, money back because you know so many books are published there's like more books being published right now than ever before sure. I think and so that means that it's that much harder for any of those books to actually sell like mm-hmm. they're all clamoring for attention in re- reduced outlets yeah um, but so the general idea yes is that say they give you an advance of $20,000 or whatever yeah they they're obviously hoping that you are going to earn enough money and sell enough copies that they will earn back that money and then you could start getting royalties sure. on anything that's sold after that. Um, the thing that I always tell the students is like, okay, so that 20 grand, it's usually going to be broken up into like four payments and given out over a period of something like two years. It's going to go first to your agent who takes 15% and then it's going to, you know, you're going to go to you and you take a third of that out for taxes. Yeah. And then you're left with like a few grand every six months or something like that. Sure. Um, you know, and you can get additional money out of like if you sell foreign rights or if you sell film rights or something like that. But yeah. a lot of times that just doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, speaking of film rights, I, I know uh, You're Not You was turned into a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I was just thinking, uh, you know, you've got a whole generation of kids and, and even, I guess, at this point, young adults who are coming up and wanting to be writers because they loved Harry Potter mm-hmm. and they look at J.K. Rowling who in a span of like 20 years went to be from being like an unknown writer to a millionaire movie producer basically mm-hmm. um, and I just wonder if there's a certain generation of writers who are going to be like that's how it works I mean, I suppose that's true of anything where you get rich and famous, though, right? There's always going to be a person who you can look at and say, but look how it happened for that person, Mm -hmm. you know? And um, I think that's where adulthood comes into play, you know? That's where, like, growing up and kind of seeing how this stuff works and that there's a lot of people. With my last guest, we talked a lot about how people my age, I'm 27 Mm -hmm. um, and younger, we're not adults yet. Yeah. I, I'm 27, and by all uh, standards, I'm an adult. I live at home. I don't live at home. <laughs> I, I live in my parents' basement, I, but I clean it all by myself. I don't live at home. I'm married. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, I had a full-time job. I don't anymore, but uh, I'm an adult, mm-hmm. and I still catch myself every now and then being like, I wonder when life's going to start. I, I'm just mm-hmm. a kid, and... and um, so I, I think, uh, I hate, this makes me sound like I think I'm an old man, but I think it's dangerous for a generation or this generation and the generation behind me because the attitude really is, 
oh, my parents have a lot of money right now, so I should. Mm-hmm. And J.K. Rowling sold a million bajillion books, so mm-hmm. I'm gonna. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of. Um, uh, it's going to take a big failure to become grounded, is, mm-hmm. is how I look at it. Although, but won't life provide that corrective? Hopefully. You know what I mean? For most of us, it does, because yeah. after a while, you kind of look and go, okay, this is how life actually seems to have worked for me. Yeah. I'm not J.K. Rowling, and yeah. my definition, but I'm but I'm happy. I'm doing work I care about. Yeah. You know, I have these definitions of success that turn out to be different than the dream that I had. Sure. And you also just start to pick up on the fact that like that only happens to like 0.5%, yeah. you know, and, and but, that is the tricky thing. Growing man. up, we all think, like, that'll probably be us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure. Like, will it be now or will it be tomorrow? Yeah. Well, it, it's like, uh, it's funny because there's, there's that applies across the board. It's not even just success. It's like, um, I have heard people say, who grew up in California uh, when the Hillside Strangler mm-hmm. was a thing, uh, a serial killer, uh, and they were like, oh, I knew, I, as a 13-year-old boy, I knew going to bed every night the Hillside Strangler was going to get me. Mm-hmm. Like, I was the one he was coming for. And, and it, I think that's such an interesting thing that, like, the human brain, or I, it's probably not the brain, it's mm-hmm. the emotion or whatever, is like, I'm the special, unique one. And, it, and it's either I'm special and unique, so I'm going to be the president and change the world, mm-hmm. or I'm special and unique, so... The hillside strangler is going to get me, and what an interesting human condition yeah. that is. Well, that we're we, yeah, we're all the stars of our own movie for yeah. good or ill. Yeah, and you know, and I, half the time, I guess I think that's what like writers and actors and artists are doing. Like we're just like, well, I'm going to go ahead and make that movie. Sure, I'm and go I, ahead and write that book. And you have to have a certain delusion of grandeur, maybe, or a certain yeah. amount of ego to say, like, I think what I have to say is important. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's isn't isn't that just part of like development too? Like the ego realizing, like I don't know, getting your ego sort of down to size in the shape of yeah. or in relation to the rest of the world. Totally, you know. But yeah, I mean, if you and then we all know those people who who don't, who never do, yeah. <laughs> and they're they're all, they live their whole life thinking I'm the special and unique one. Mm-hmm. This is this is finally going to be the project. Yeah, I can tell. Or just everything is in relation to me. Yeah, you know, it, like you see that with people's emotional relationships, where like yes. somebody will state an opinion, like how could they say that in front of me? When they know I don't agree, and it's like, but they're allowed to not agree. You know, it's actually I, not all about you. The older I get, I think the thing I uh, find more and more is that uh, most people can't see beyond themselves mm. across the board. Everything, mm-hmm. and that's infuriating. Uh, yeah, it, it, it could be as something as little as I'm driving and I'm late. And don't you know that I'm late, so go faster? And it can, you know, be a big thing. But mm-hmm. um, that's a really frustrating thing for me to deal with. <laughs> yeah, and you see it even just in conversation, too. Like, the person who is just going to sit there and tell you story after story, but they never ask you a question. Yeah. You know what I mean? They, and you can tell, like, it's so hard to... You have this... I don't know. I've had those experiences where you think, like, you're going this way, and the other person's just sort of going this way. Yep. And you never quite meet. You know, you just talk in different directions. Yeah. And so I actually have an acquaintance who is very... Very much like that. Uh, so tell, what did you just tell me? What you? I'll be him. Just mm-hmm. tell me what you did yesterday. Just one thing. Mm-hmm. So yesterday I had a business meeting over oh, Skype. Oh, with who? Over Skype. Over Skype. Oh, actually, you know what? I know the guy who uh, invented Skype. Uh, we're actually close personal friends. <laughs> so who was the who was the business meeting with? Uh, it was with my editorial colleagues. Oh, actually, you know what? I am an editor, and uh, and, and that's all he does. I run Knopf. Yes, yeah. and it's like. I am going to jump off a bridge. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
I I won't say the person's name, uh, but I I just finish the beer. We'll get to it. (laughs) Yeah, I just want to be like, hey, you know, it's okay that other people have stories and have experiences, and it's okay to accept that and just like make other people you don't have to know everything yeah like some things can be new to you i think sometimes though isn't it like a it's like a a bid for you know communication or togetherness with some people and it's just because they don't seem to be able to do anything else that you come to feel like yeah okay back off now because sometimes like i know i sometimes have that feeling where somebody's telling me i'm like i can't wait to tell you what you just made me think of and it's because i want to connect and sometimes it's because i'm like oh my god my story's hilarious you gotta hear it (laughs) i'm human like anybody else um but yeah, I mean, I know what you mean when you're just like, you don't have to like one up every single thing. Yes. It's it's like, um, I don't know if you ever do this, but sitting around a computer and watching YouTube videos with a group of friends. I have never done this. This must be a generation. It, yes. Yeah. Uh, it, and it's people from my generation will absolutely know what I'm talking about. You sit around and watch a video on YouTube with your friends and somebody's going to go, oh, we have to watch this one next. Okay. And then after that one, somebody or in the middle of that one, somebody's like, oh, after this, we're doing this one. And, and like... That's how the conversations are with this person, mm-hmm. and it is just draining. And I just, I don't want to sit here and complain anymore. <laughs> okay, yeah, but, but we all know that feeling. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about. I mean, I don't know what you want to focus on as far as your books. I, I watched You're Not You mm-hmm. last night. I didn't read it. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Uh, so actually, I think my first uh, thought last night was how um, how different was it from the book? You know, first of all, I recommend the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recommend the book as well because I assume it was it, it's a great book. But the movie is great, and I'm really surprised that it was a limited release uh, because I'm not a Hillary Swank fan, but her performance in this was amazing. Yeah, she's really she is really amazing in it. I yeah, think. yeah. So how different was it from the book? You know, in in a lot of ways, it is really faithful. Um, yeah. The things that were different, and and I always want to start this by saying. Like I fully expect that when when they buy the rights, they don't ask the writer like, Ooh, "What should it be like?" It's there; they have to make it into a new art form. So you expect it to change, and I sure. was totally fine with all of that. Um, I think some of the things that changed were um, the book is told from Beck's point of view, and okay. it's actually really her story. Sure. Um, but one of the assumptions that I had was that you know early on Hillary Swank was attached to play Kate, and so you know really like she's part of the the reason that it got made, if not yeah. the reason it got made. And so yeah. so guess who that's going to focus on now. It's going to become her story. And that's sure. just, it makes sense. It makes business sense. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that changed. She was really into cooking in the book mm-hmm. and she was an interior designer. Okay. And so a lot is made of how she creates her space around her and the life that she sort of demands back help her live even though, and we should say that this is about a character who has ALS yeah. and who hires uh, a college student as a caregiver and um, the college student becomes really deeply involved in um, Kate, who's the one with ALS, and Kate's marriage and um and in her life in general. So it's, yeah. it's kind of like a love story between these two women, really. Yeah. Anyway, um, and so... What, they, so let me interject uh-huh. re- just real quick. Which In the book, is she a musician? No. No. Okay. So that's like, I think it's easier to dramatize the musician thing let than it is, say, it cooking. Is. Yeah. So, um, so, I mean, there's certain like really interesting things just from a technical standpoint, like what translates to film and what doesn't. Yeah. Um, what else? I think there's a moment or at some point where Kate and her husband separate and then they kind of get back together and that really was not in the book. In the book, they separate, and yeah. that's it. Yeah. 
there's a, a character in the movie who is another woman with ALS and her husband, and they were invented for the script. They were not in the book. Yeah. Um, so things like that, you know. But but the the essential relationship between the two women, um, what happens in the end with with them is all I think really really faithful. And for the most part, you would say it stayed it stayed true. I think so. Yeah. You know, the, the... I think there were moments where I felt like they introduced um, elements that I was kind of like I don't think that that it's different. It's necessarily better. Sure. It felt like honestly, like there are things that feel kind of cliched to me. Yeah. There. Yeah. But um, but what can you do? I I actually um, having not read the book, uh, my wife and I talked about. Um, the movie last night after we watched it and just like we said it really felt real and genuine it it never once felt like they were doing something just to elicit a reaction Mm -hmm. um I I'm a musician, so like the, the the music part of it tied me into it. Mm-hmm. And then I also I used to drive for Badger Bus here in mm-hmm. town, so I would drive people in wheelchairs, people with ALS, and like I, I honestly had no idea what the movie was about until I watched it. And right away, it, I mean, it happens pretty quick that mm-hmm. you find out uh, that she has ALS, and I'm like, I'm gonna love this movie. I can already tell. Um, and honestly, part of part of me loving it was just how well. Uh, Hillary Swank portrayed somebody going through that. Mm-hmm. I, so I, I've, after I watched it, I read a, a few reviews and watched mm-hmm. a few reviews, and pretty much everybody said, "You really believe she's going through this uh, degenerative mm-hmm. disease?" Like, she she did it flawlessly. Yeah. And one of the things I wondered about, like, how will they do this? Is that in the book, a lot of. Um, Beck has to learn how to understand her because she's hard to understand. Yeah. You know? And so I was like, how are they going to do this? And yeah. so I think the, one of the ways that they did it was that she starts off totally understandable. Yep. But they were willing to let her become very hard to understand by the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were times where I was like, I'm not entirely sure what she just said. And I actually, I thought that was really good. I mean, I think they straddled that line really well. At one point, uh, my wife's name is Ashley. At one point, Ashley said, why don't they do subtitles here? And I was kind of like, I don't know. It's kind of the point that like mm-hmm. it gives you a real sense of what this is like. Yeah. Like, having driven people and known... I have friends. Like, I would consider a lot of my old clients friends mm-hmm. to this day. It's very hard to understand some of them. Um, and what I learned in that job is you have to... Uh, repeat back what you did understand mm-hmm. and have them start after that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that part, I, I agree, that part was really key to the movie that like she really became impossible to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, the one part that I that I wondered about and was a little like, eh, I wish I, this will be something that was utterly faithful to the book. I, well, yeah, it, it couldn't be. That's okay. I, I, I wonder if it is or like, I just... The fact that Beck had no real experience, Mm -hmm. I just wonder how much she would be hired to do it. But but that being said, uh, working through Badger Bus, I've met a lot of um, a lot of caretakers who really don't have Mm -hmm. any experience. A lot of caretakers in Madison, at least, are from um, foreign countries. Mm -hmm. They move to America. They need a job. they get the job and a free place to live, and their attitudes are really uh, poor. They're mm-hmm. not. They're not great at their jobs. Mm-hmm. 
uh, but I assume they go through some training. So I just wondered with Beck, like she got hired privately by the family, and I wonder if the if her husband really would have been like, you know what I mean? Yeah, was totally. that in the book? Well, in the book, it is like that in the book, but she's not made into such a buffoon in the sure. book. You know, they really play up her like, oh, here's my crumpled resume, and and she's mm-hmm. not together. But you know, the uh, what I was thinking of with the book, um, and it's it's a reasonable thing that I think some people have wondered about too. Was um, I had met some people who had done something like this, where the idea was kind of like, look, I can train you in this stuff, but I have to hire somebody I like yeah. if I'm going to hang out with you all this time in this intimate, you know, relationship. And so um, I think it kind of depends on the person if they could handle if they could handle somebody who's not a nurse, you know, yeah. depending on the situation, do you have somebody else who can do all of this really technical stuff or, sure. or that kind of thing? But it's a totally reasonable thing. And I think it, when I was watching the movie, I was like, yeah, the way she's presented, would she be hired? And I didn't think so. Yeah. I think she'd have to be a little bit smarter, but even though I like, I love, I thought Emmy Rossum was a great back. I have to say. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I, I brought that up to Ashley and, and she goes, I don't know. Like they, they established pretty well that, that uh, the character Kate was tired of being taken care of. She didn't. She didn't want to admit she was sick, mm-hmm. um, and and she was sick of her robotic husband, like just going through the motions of this is how I take care of you. And so Ashley said, I really, I think she would hire somebody like that. She wants somebody who's just going to be normal and treat her normal for the most part. And I, I didn't think of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to say, I narrowly avoided an argument last <laughs> night while watching the movie um, because right before you find out what happens uh, with the husband. Mm-hmm. I leaned over to my wife and I said, I gotta be honest, as a husband, I... I wouldn't cheat on you, mm-hmm. but I would. But I would not cheat on you. No, I mean, what, what I said was, I said my my feeling that I would have to fight a lot is I didn't sign up for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she and she she turned over and looked at me. And she went, uh, Yeah, you did. Yeah, I was going to say you kind of did. And, but, you, but we're all human, and it's hard to yeah, know and, when you anticipate. Yeah. I, so I, my point, Ashley, if you're listening, mm-hmm. my my point was you, <laughs> is that. You know, nobody envisions that for their future. On my wedding day, I didn't think you're going to get ALS Mm -hmm. and slowly die a horrible death. Mm -hmm. Uh, My thought was, we're going to live in perfect health until we're old and decrepit, Mm -hmm. and then we'll die. And then magically, yeah. Yeah, we'll go to sleep one night and both die at the same time. Uh, And so, I don't know, I identified Mm -hmm. with the husband. because it didn't seem, I, mean, I don't know, I don't want to give away stuff, but he cheats on her. Well, you know, and it, that's another thing that was different in the movie from what I recall, too, because in the book, he kind of, he's, I think in the book he says, like, I need something. I need to, like, I need some kind of sexual satisfaction. Yeah. And the thing is, though, so does she. And the yeah. book is really clear. And they, they lose this in the movie, is that Kate is not done feeling sexual, and she's sure. not done um, with that part I don't, of her life. I don't think they did lose it in the movie, because there was, at well, one point in the, the movie. Did they have that in the no, movie? No, no. Okay. At one point. She lays down in bed with him, or he, or oh, he, right, and he kind of, and he looks at, or yeah. she looks at him and, and says his name. I can't remember his name. Evan. <laughs> sorry. I'm like, who was that man? Uh, she looks over and says Evan, uh-huh. and I knew what was. She was like, I want to have sex. Yeah, and you know, she doesn't say that. She says mm-hmm. she has bedroom eyes, and uh-huh. and he's 
he's done. And and I actually, at that point, looked at Ashley and said, I don't think I could have sex with you anymore. Well, and that would be a reasonable, there's something interesting, in, like if you have room to really discuss um, how that would work in a marriage. I think that's really, that would be kind of fascinating. But what I was going to say, though, too, is that um, in the book, he kind of has an, he has an affair. And yeah. in the movie, he just sleeps with somebody like one time and yep. regrets it, which is really different. And in the book, she's kind of like, you know, I'm not going to be around for all that long. Like, you can't wait. You yeah. can't give yourself a year, yeah. you know, and just sort of see me out. Like, I can't watch you date and feel like the worst thing in the world is for you to see me as a person. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where I don't want to get all... Everyone is wrong who would do this because I think you can't write any good fiction. You can't write a good novel if you're not willing to be like with human flawed characters and not sure. willing to allow like these things that we don't want to think about. I mm. think that's all of fiction sometimes is stuff I don't want to think about or things that I can't imagine when you make them happen. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely, I mean, it's it's really hard to, to picture. Like, what would that look like? It's very easy to sit here and be like, I'm sure that I would be wonderful. You yeah. know, I'd be so self I'm sure I probably I know, wouldn't man. be. I, I, like, I would try my hardest. But um, it, so when that came up, you know, I, I said to Ashley, I said, I don't think I don't think I could have sex with you anymore. Um, and she's like, why? And I said, I wouldn't want to hurt you. And then mm-hmm. that comes up in the movie. He said, mm-hmm. I, I needed to be able to touch somebody and not hurt them. Mm-hmm. And I think that is totally, uh, I think, how every man would sort of feel. Mm-hmm. Like, not that you necessarily would be hurting the person, but I think that would be in your head. Like... You know, it's it's hard uh, to look at a disabled person and not. It's hard to look at them as a, as fully a person. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one of the things that would be interesting, I suppose, I'm like sort of writing. I'm writing their novel that I didn't write in my head now. Sure, would be that. Um, you know, when we see them, she's already pretty far in that moment. She's pretty far along yeah. progression. Whereas if you were in an actual couple. You would have had to make accommodations along the way. It would have happened more slowly. Sure. And so it would be interesting to think, like, where's the point where it stops feeling like this is just what we do, this is an accommodation. For some couples, that point might never come. Yeah. It might always be like, no, this is okay. It's different, but it's okay. Yeah. Um, but for somebody else, it might be at some point, I no longer feel like we are equal partners in this hmm. or, you know, or, or something has changed. Totally. And it's it'd be different for every person where that would fall. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, what motivated you to write about ALS um, do, do you have experience with it or just someone with disabilities or, or what well because I, because at least in the movie it was and I'm sure in the book it was very well portrayed what it's like um, for two reasons. One, then the Broadway is, goes right back to what we were just talking about, about like imagining what would it be like for me if I did this? How would I react? And I'll get to that in a second. But I had a friend who worked as a caregiver um, after college for a woman with ALS. Yeah. And she became um, she became a good friend of mine and later of my husband's. And it really, it had a big ripple effect throughout all of our lives. Sure. And a lot of the, um, there are little kernels of that story in the book. And um, I just found it fascinating, though, when I heard her talk about what it was like doing this job. And there were so many little things that I had never stopped to think about in daily life. And one was like the way if people can't understand you, then you have to have this person who can interpret for you. And they might be interpreting really intimate stuff. Sure. Uh, These moments, all the things that, like, you have to bring in another body to do for you that you can't do for yourself and how uncomfortable that might feel. Yeah. And so, but I was really interested in that idea of, like, the voice. You have to have a voice from somebody. And the idea of how there's a a moment of Beck like trying to mimic Kate and her tone because sometimes Beck editorializes and she gets smacked down for it rightly so Um, and I found that really fascinating 
and the sexual part too I found really fascinating this idea of like you know it hadn't occurred to me that somebody who couldn't do any movement might say could you help me with this hands free vibrator because yeah. I need some help I don't want to ask you for that I'm not particularly enjoying it sure. but we're human and this is what I need and you know they kind of get into that in the um, in the movie a little bit with in their case it's the bathroom which is a scene yeah. that comes pretty much straight out of the book pretty closely sure. except for actually falling I think she doesn't fall yeah um, but it was like Beck really needs to believe that Kate is totally calm and totally confident and then she gets a little glimpse that like Kate doesn't feel any better about this than she does but it has to happen yeah and so I was really interested in what are those accommodations how minute can they get how weird and unexpected and uncomfortable they can get <laughs> and um, and then that whole question of like you know Beck is just a person who is chooses to throw herself into this she's just a yeah. regular person and yeah. Kate is just a regular person so it's really easy to feel your life take that little step to the side and imagine what that would be like and so that is why um, that's why I was interested in the story the ALS was because I had come across somebody who had experienced it and I thought well this is interesting I'm going to do that yeah yeah I mean, so I, I, I'm not like uh, an expert on disabilities or anything, but like working at Badger again, it really taught me like <clears throat> you're just a person. Like it's really weird that that we look at people who are disabled and you know <laughs> you talk to a blind person louder, mm-hmm. uh, or you talk to a person in a wheelchair like they're a child. And I love, I love that I worked for Badger and, and got really exposed to people with disabilities because mm-hmm. it really taught me, hey, you're just a person like me. You have troubles just like me, like everything. Um, and I think it's weird that, like, especially um, disabilities that affect your speech, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, we, um, as able-bodied people... Uh, take that to mean that your brain is gone, that mm-hmm. you're diminished in that capacity. Yeah, like there's such a failure of imagination or empathy or something. Yeah. And I wonder sometimes if some of the talking over of you know, people who have who are harder to understand comes out of just social nervousness. You know, sure. like you were saying that um, you you found it best to repeat back what the person had said up to where you stopped understanding it and then they could go from there. And yeah. you know, I know there have been times when like I didn't think about that but I had a hard time understanding it, so I'd be embarrassed and I'd want to be like, oh I'll just talk over that and then we won't, you, you, you know. Just, so, you just smile and nod. Yeah, and yeah. so I did the exact same thing that we just sit here and complained about, about like people just being jerks or being dismissive or being whatever. And the motivation doesn't really matter because, you know, it's like the thousand little cuts, you know, to the person who's actually on the receiving end of this. Yeah. You're kind of like, does it matter that people are uncomfortable? Like, just get over it. Um, when they just can't get it together. But, uh, yeah, it's always, it's interesting to figure out like, why are we so weird about this stuff? Yeah. And we are. Yeah. I am too. I mean, We're, we're very yeah. weird about it. Um, um, you know, I, I'll be honest. I would never want a job where I have to wipe somebody's butt who was <laughs> a grown adult. Don't seek it out. You know? You know? But, yeah. but it's probably part of something that, in the larger sense, yeah. you know, you you believe in the rest of it. Yeah. And so, like, I mean, I, I've always known that jobs like that existed, but it wasn't until I had a job that was tied to that sort of thing. Uh, so, I don't know. I, I love people. I love talking to people. I love knowing about them. It's why I do this. Um 
And so, like, I wanted to learn a lot about my clients and, like, their disabilities and things. So I would go home and read. I, I love, I'm not a huge fiction fan. Mm-hmm. I, I love to read articles and whatever. I could w- read Wikipedia all day. Not that it's going to be totally true all the time. Yeah. Uh, but so I would go home and read articles. And it, and it wasn't until I had this job that I realized, uh, to kind of go back to what you were talking about, um, that there there are people who are caregivers, but they're they're sexual caregivers. Mm-hmm. They their entire job is to help facilitate a disabled person or a, or two disabled people to be able to have sexual contact. Mm-hmm. And what a hell of a job! Uh, because one of the most awkward jobs I could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. But also, like I think about it, and it's like, wow, how selfless and like awesome that you're willing. To give this to them, um, so like, but maybe somewhere in between too. Like, it's it's not necessarily selfless. It's like I like to make this is something that I think is part of a healthy life. Yeah, and I have learned a lot about it. I don't see it as um, I'm not saying I, but you know, yes. here yeah. I am. I'm just pretending to be this person who I don't know anything about. Um, but that's my job. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> like. You know, like I, I see this in sort of clinical terms, or I understand how yep. to affect this change that you guys need. So um, maybe it's not selfless or whatever, except that it's the gratification of helping somebody in a really clear, direct way. Yes. You know, and maybe yeah. it's more like a lack of um, embarrassment. You know, sure. you just kind of get beyond that, and you're like, okay, this is just a job we do. Yeah. I don't know. I, well, so I always looked at my job there, um, just driving people. Um, so uh, this might be people might take it wrong or whatever, but I have always kind of looked at somebody who's disabled or just disability in general. If you're in a wheelchair, there is a certain part of life that's taken from you, or that or that you're not afforded. Um, if you can't drive, for example, and if you want cookies today, you and the store is ten miles away, you're not going to get cookies. Uh, you and I, you know, being able-bodied people, if we want cookies, we drive to the store or walk to the store, whatever, we can get there fast. Um, so I looked at my job where I can take somebody to go and get those cookies. I know that's like a real simple thing, but I looked at my job as giving life back, mm-hmm. a certain amount of life back to a person. Um, and so, like, I thinking about uh, the caregivers who provide a sexual service, or I don't, I don't, I don't even know how you say mm-hmm. it, um, but like that's giving a huge chunk of life back to somebody, mm-hmm. or just giving it, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, like I mean, there is there is a certain amount of gratification to help somebody, but I still think it would be pretty selfless, like. Mm-hmm. At least from from my perspective, because there's no way in hell I would ever do that. <laughs> well, and maybe that's why it would be selfless for you to do it. You yeah. know, like you probably wouldn't choose it as a career if it yeah. were something that you were like, I don't want to do that at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I don't know. Well, I think your next one should your next one of these podcasts should actually be with like a sex therapist, and then you can find out yeah. exactly how this works. And I don't know. that we have no idea. We completely <laughs> imagined it all wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um 
So, what are your other books about? Because I, so I I'm sorry, I don't do much research. I think I told you that. I, I, uh, I prefer uh, to talk to people, kind of like it's like a blind date where yeah. we don't, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I had a sudden moment as just a moment ago as we were sitting there. I was like, I don't know this person, but here we are talking about sex therapy. Yeah, good, right? good for us. I'm down with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my second book is about the, the first two are both set in Madison for whatever the reason. I guess because okay. I was, um, I was living. Wait, so you're not you was set in is Madison. also set in Madison. Okay. Yeah, the movie's not, but the book is. Yeah. Um, I was living away from Madison, and I think I kind of missed it, and so it was just sort of fun to be like, no, I'll, I'll just live in it in my imagination. And sure. So um, the second book I finished in like 2007 or 2008, and if you remember kind of what things were like around 2007, 2008, it probably won't shock you that that book is about a bunch of people kind of afraid the world might be ending. Sure. And it, I, what I was interested in writing about was a feeling of like, what if the world doesn't end with a bang? What if it just starts slowing down? You know, the infrastructure starts to crack in little ways. Yeah. And so it follows this group of people who are living in a co-op on Lake Monona on Morrison Street. I just invented it. Um, and over the course of several days when the power goes out. And basically, and there, there's no explanation for it. Nobody can quite figure out what's going on. And everybody kind of keeps on trying to live life, but yeah. everyone's beginning to wonder just what the hell is going on. Hmm. Um, and other things happen, but that's mainly what it's about. And then the third book is about three brothers in the restaurant business. And that one takes place in a fictional town in Pennsylvania that's kind of near Philadelphia, but far enough away that you're not hopping in and out of the city all the time. Sure. And um, what I was interested in writing about then was that um, I'd been looking for a way to write about re- the restaurant business because I worked in the restaurant business for a long time and I love food and love cooking and I just find it fascinating. And I wanted to write a family novel. And then I was like, well, is there a way I can do both together? And um, I couldn't figure out how to put them together for a long time until I was I was writing some freelance article or something and um, I was reminded that the, the brothers, I think the Berg brothers, um, who run, you know, they do uh, Knoxville and okay, they have, yeah. Yeah. Um, all the other places that I'm forgetting. But somebody had mentioned that they don't all own the same restaurants together. So one brother might own this one, the sure. other brother goes off and does that. And then I was like, oh, that's actually really interesting because you could use the restaurant then as like a way to characterize the brother and the brother characterizes his own restaurant. Oh, sure. Then they're in competition potentially with each other. And so then it became this book where the two older brothers have owned the sort of granddaddy formal restaurant for 10 years and they're very successful, but they're kind of maybe getting a little bit stayed at it. Sure. And their younger brother comes back to town and opens up a hip little joint um, and kind of starts beating him at their own game but in fact he really wants them to kind of work with him he's not trying to compete he's trying to like you know be together and they're not having it Um, so it's all about you know how you can grow up and it's so hard to get away from your family role Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also about the restaurant industry which is crazy and how much fun it is to write about a crazy weird industry yeah Yeah. when did that one come out that came out um, it just came out in paperback recently it was out in 2014 okay I know I'm going to backtrack a Mm -hmm. little bit here because uh, one of the things I was curious about is um, how how's a how's a book get optioned uh, by Hollywood? I mean, um, how long was that book out before you ever heard anything from Hollywood, LA, yeah. whatever? Yeah, Hollywood, the collective Hollywood. Right. Um, yeah. In, I can only speak about how it happened with with me, but it's probably similar and in a, just a bigger scale for a lot of books. But sure. So um, with You're Not You, when it came out, it got um, a pretty big review in People magazine, and okay. that immediately started off. Like I would get like a bunch of queries from film people saying, "What's the film rights situation?" I was like, "Oh my god, my life is going to change!" And it turns out like nothing happened. 
happens very fast, you know, and <laughs> my life's pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, but so then people just kind of start getting interested. And sure. in the case of, um, and I had an, an agent who gave it to a film agent, and then a film agent starts shopping it around the same way a literary agent shops around okay. publishers. They start sending it around and trying to get somebody who's going to put together all the people. Um, and in the case of You're Not You, the producer, Allison Greenspan, who was involved from the start, her sister had read it um, because she saw the People magazine review, and their father had ALS. Okay. And he has since died. But at the time, she was like, okay, so, you know, this is very important to both of us. You should read this. And so then she decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to make this movie. And so that's kind of how that got started. Hmm. And that makes it sound like it happened really, really fast. And in fact, I did hear from Allison Greenspan via agents or whatever, I think pretty soon after the book came out, which is in 2006. Sure. But it wasn't finally, like, optioned, meaning, you know, everybody's signatures were in place, and at least, you know, a few people were um, were attached until, like, 2008. Okay. Maybe even, yeah, maybe 2008. So, at least, like, a full two years, at least, two or three years. Yeah. And then after that, it was still even longer before they actually got the money to make the thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then it took a long time for them to get any distribution at all, even the minimal distribution that they got. Sure. So, I mean, it's, it's really, really, and I, it, and it's different for some people if you look at like you know something insane like Gone Girl or like yeah. Wild those were huge crazy bestsellers so it's only natural somebody's going to get in on the film rights right away yeah. but this was a completely different deal this was a small book that happened to get more attention than even the publisher was expecting frankly sure. so uh, when a movie comes out um, do you notice an increase in book sales uh, too soon to say so you know when, when did it come out well the movie came out this fall okay. and I don't see any you know I see the numbers yeah. later on yeah. and, and in this case I don't think it's going to make that big a difference you know, they printed some more, sure. um, but because it was so small, it's not like they were like expecting mm. a huge run on copies. I'm but telling you, the movie absolutely. should have been bigger. It, yeah. I, I, uh, it should have gotten noticed uh, by the Academy. I, I, I'll go ahead and say it. She should have it at the very least. Uh, I thought... Um, um, did you see The Theory of Everything? No. Um, so that's uh, Stephen I know Hawking. what it is, yeah. Um, his portrayal of, of Stephen Hawking mm-hmm. going through what he goes through, it was like incredible mm-hmm. that that an able-bodied person could could become what Stephen Hawking yeah. is. And like it was just, I saw that movie this year and was like, this is the greatest performance I've ever seen from an actor. Mm-hmm. I watched uh, You're Not You last night. And it was the same, I was like, this is on par. Uh, Hillary Swank's performance is on par. Mm-hmm. So Did he we, get nominated? Yeah, he did. Okay. Yeah, I, I, If he doesn't win, I'm going to be upset. Mm-hmm. You know, so far, I have, uh, uh, for the last three years, I've been able to guess oh, who, yeah. who's won the best actor. So uh, hopefully, hopefully, I forget his name. I can't remember it, but... Um, so, how long have you been in Madison now? Well, I was in Madison the first time for seven years, okay. and then I was gone from 2000 to, the, to 2007, okay. and then I came back at the end of 2007, so I've been back for, like, this is just over seven years. Okay. Yeah. Do you feel the itch to move again? Is there a, is there a know, seven right? year... There apparently was, right? Yeah. So I was like, uh, what's going to happen? But no, now we're pretty settled in, Sure. and it's not that I think that, you know, I was... I was only in two places in my adulthood, Madison and sure. you know the New York area, and you feel like, well, there's more places out there. But yeah. I, um, I really I like Madison. I like having my parents nearby when I have a really young child. And totally. I, <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if I hated it, it'd be different. If, it wouldn't, wouldn't be enough if I didn't like the city. Yeah. You know? but so I think for now, I, I can't see where we'd go. But sure. life is long. You so know. you were the beginning in 93 to 2000, right? Mm-hmm. And then you were in New York from 2000 to 2007? Yeah. 
uh, I'm always interested, you know, since it's the Madison Story Slam podcast, we're very focused in Madison. I'm always interested how in how my guests have seen Madison change. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you notice or if you can think of in those seven years that you were gone, I wonder, did you notice a change coming back in Madison? Um, you know, that's a really good question. And it definitely has changed. But I, it happened so slowly now that I'm here, too. And I kept coming back. You know, I come yeah. back and see my parents. Sure. So, like, downtown has grown a lot. You can see um, things feeling more city-like that for okay. a long time it didn't feel city-like. Um, or, the you know, the east side is definitely starting to heat up in a way it hadn't before. Yeah. Um, even though I always loved the east side and always loved, like, the Willie Street area and, and lived there. But I had a friend recently who went to school here back when, um, in like the late 60s, early 70s. So when, you know, there was like a lot of stuff really going on. And he was just like, this is so different. It's so built up. Sure. It doesn't have any of the, like, the awesome scruffiness that it had. Like, and it was like, I don't know that I would have seen it as awesome scruffiness because I'm, I, I kind of like it getting built up. But yeah. he saw it as, you know, it, it had lost the romance for him that I, it had had. I can see that. Which I get it. If that's when also when that's when you were in college and life felt True. really, and it was, it was a big earth shape, shift moment you know, yeah. at that point. So I can see why yeah. this felt kind of tamped down, I think, to him. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, the restaurant scene has changed a lot, and it's yeah. like that, I guess. But um, that's a really good question, because I feel like I didn't leave, leave. I kept coming sure. back, because I had friends, so I stayed tuned in enough that I, as soon as I leave here, they'll all think of a thousand ways in which it's right. totally different. But, right. you know. uh, so my first guest was Tom Farley, who's mm-hmm. Chris Farley's older brother, and, and then co-wrote uh, uh, the book, The Chris Farley Show. And I asked him that question because he spent a significant time in New York, mm-hmm. and uh, and I don't think he, he came back till like 2005. He was gone for over 20 years. Oh and, wow! And um, uh, he he came back and he he goes. So he grew up in Maple Bluff mm-hmm. uh, in the 60s and 70s, and um, talks about how. Uh, you know, in the late 60s, it was Vietnam, and uh, Madison was pretty active in protesting Vietnam. And he goes, in Maple Bluff, we had no idea. We were so closed off, and my parents kind of kept us away from what Madison was. He goes, I came back and really looked at what Madison was, and he goes, I, I, I came back and was like, when did Madison become cool? Like a cool art space and music, and all the scenes here are so awesome. And I looked at him, and I went, Tom, it's always been cool. It's all like... I mean, with the UW right there, it has to be. You know, you've got this influx of thousands of people in their young 20s, whatever, early 20s. It has to meet that, you know. It does, but I've lived in college towns that don't really? do it the same way. Like, they, they, in a smaller scale, they might, but they might not have that same sense of... Um, just quite as much happening, I guess, you okay. know, because I'm thinking of like where I went to school, you know, I took classes at Kent State or something like that, or my, where I went to, my freshman year was at Bowling Green State University, Ohio, which I went to because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, nothing against Bowling Green, but it wasn't my place. It was in the middle of nowhere, and I'm not a middle of nowhere kind of person. Yeah. But, um... But so, I mean, they, these were college towns, and they had, like, a little bit of it, but they didn't have quite the same sort of interest, I guess, or the same hmm. vibe. And one of the things that I kind of like about Madison is that there are different ways to enjoy it. You know what I mean? Like, I, the Madison that I had as a 
student is really different from the Madison that I have now. Yeah. I enjoy them both in completely different ways. And there was an interesting crossover as I learned how to like, when I was a college student, I was like, I'm going to get to know the farmer's market. Sure. You know, I'm going to get to know like downtown. And like, I, I didn't know anything about downtown and I found it kind of weird. And so like, it was like learning to be an adult, Yeah. I guess here. Yeah. And I like that there were sort of different ways that you could enter the city and get to know it and enjoy it. And mm-hmm. they're different now. Like I, I live in it a different way than I did five years ago. Sure. You know, so, which is probably true of any city, but I'm, you know, I'm a Madison booster. What can I say? Yeah. yeah. Well, I love Madison. Um, so you were in Ohio. That's mm-hmm. where you're born. Small town Ohio? I always think of it as a small town, but then I met somebody from New Glarus who said she graduated with like 15 people. And so sure. she informed me that was not a small town because I graduated with 400 people. But that's, a, that's like, I mean, some prairie. Small, pretty small. Is, yeah. it, like my sister graduated from some prairie with 400 people. Yeah. Some so prairie, it's not that big. Yeah. It's not a, it's growing, but it's, you know, it's a small town, small yeah. city. Yeah. Um, so it was called, it was right near Akron, Akron and uh, Stowe. Yeah. It, was, it was like, you know, 30,000 people, I think. Sure. Nothing too much. There was no downtown. So, yeah. So the reason I brought it up is because mm-hmm. of the way that you said downtown Madison. Mm-hmm. Uh, was coming to Madison like the big city? Um, I think my parents communicated a lot of that to me. And sure. so it wasn't that Madison was the big city, but it was a city. Sure. And it just had anything that felt a little different or felt a little interesting. And yeah. what I remember, like, when I got a job at Lake Tual, which I started doing right after college, was that I had always had this thing of, like, I don't know downtown. It, also, it, it's kind of hard to get around just because it all looks the same. You know, like, yeah. the spokes around there. And well, so and also like, the one weird one-way streets. Yeah, and, and, yeah. I, and I was very, like, intimidated by that. And, you know, then you have to, you go and you live and you navigate New York City in a car and you're pretty not worried about the downtown <laughs> of Madison. But to me then it felt, yeah, like, you it was know, daunting. I had to, like, learn how to do this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I do think that was definitely um, a feeling that I had where I was like, I will learn this. Sure. Yeah. I I always find it funny when, uh, I, I actually think I mentioned this on a past previous episode, uh, I have cousins who are from Arlington, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is really only like 45 minutes away. But coming to East Town Mall mm. is is big. Yeah. You know. And I've, it, I've seen people online say, like, I tell my kids they cannot go to downtown Madison because like, it's not safe. You're not allowed to go to State Street. And I was like, wow. You know, there are there are some areas in Madison that I wouldn't want my kids to go to. Downtown is not one of them. Yeah. I'd have no problem. Although, I, I will say, here's a change, actually. Mm-hmm. When I was in college, maybe I just wasn't reading the same newspapers, but I feel like I did not hear about as many issues of violence and muggings late at night at bar time as I do now around yeah. here. I actually, so, um, I... Again, I keep bringing up working for Badger. When I worked for Badger Bus, uh, you know, I was out late driving people home, uh, oftentimes going to the Allied Drive neighborhood, um, the West Badger Road neighborhood, things like that. Not great neighborhoods. They're not as bad as, like, Allied Drive is not as bad as it used to be. But mm-hmm. um, And so I started paying attention to the police blotter and... So I started paying attention, like, right when I started, and by the end of my three years there, I could see the change. Mm-hmm. Where in the last year that I was there, there was, there was like, four murders mm-hmm. in Madison that year, and tons of muggings and violent assaults. And same thing. I was, like, I look at it now, I'm like, man, I don't... Again, maybe I wasn't really paying attention before. Yeah. But I don't... 
you know, as a as a teenager, I don't remember hearing about all this yeah. in Madison ever. And as a woman, I have to say that I I would assume that there was a ton of sexual assault that we just didn't hear about. Sure, you know, because I think that's that's kind of always the way. Yeah. Um, so that probably hasn't changed. I think we just hear more about it. But but there does seem to be more of just like the bar time, drunken stabbings and muggings or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't laugh when I say that, but. <laughs> Uh-huh. But you did. Yeah, but I did. Um, Maybe we can cut that. I, uh, I I oftentimes find myself going back to, uh, do you remember the Audrey Sealer thing no. that happened in Madison? When was this? Oh, it might man. have been while I was gone. Or you were gone from 2000 to 2007? Yeah. Yeah, you were probably gone. There was a student named uh, um, Audrey Sealer, uh-huh. Sealer, who went missing. Uh-huh. Uh, Oh, did she turn back up again? Yeah, she she faked the whole thing. Okay. And it was like, it made national news. Um, yeah, but there's one other... Um, there's one other female student who... Um, Brittany Zimmerman. Do you remember that, that case? I was, I was here for that, I think. I, uh, I go back to that all the time because whoever did that is still out there. Yeah. And... and that's terrifying to me. Like I, I don't. This show is so funny to me. Not funny. It's interesting that suddenly we're talking about the Britney Spears murder. How did we murder? There, yeah. Um, well, but because like, it's like a horror movie that actually happened. Yeah. And we have totally. to go around, like, to go around just day to day, getting anything done in our lives. We have to believe this stuff won't happen. Yeah. You know, there's any number of things that we have to just say, like, that's not going to happen. Yeah. I'm not going to worry about that. And, and to that family, that happened. Yeah. You know, that's, it's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good comparison to horror movie. Like, because it, it really is... Um, that happened. You're totally right. And and so, you know, I like... I'm an American. I'm an, a, red, a red-blooded American male. And I love shows like Law & Order SVU. <laughs> so, like, I come back to... The, I read about that case every now and then, at least once a year. Because I'm just like, I wonder if they found anything yet. Did anything ever... Nothing, nothing ever came up, right? Ever. Yeah. Nothing. Um, and the fact that it was, like, broad daylight, yeah, that somebody went into her apartment and... Nobody's ever known anything. That would be a book. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah, and just, you know, if you know anybody who writes. That's right. Um, but what a depressing book to write. Do you, do you find yourself uh, leaning more towards writing happy things? And- well, you know, I just had this conversation um, with one of my relatives over the weekend, and she said, Michelle, I have a question for you. Like, you're very funny. How sure. come your books are? She's like, your books are great, but they're, they're so dark. Why don't you write something really funny? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I start off being like, this one will be funny, and then in order to get dramatic stakes, it seems like I always take it in some darkish place. Yeah. And my third one is is feels much more like me. Bread and butter sure. is pretty funny. It feels a lot more like I think what it's like to say talk to me and you know that I'm not actually terribly dark. Yeah. Um, but somehow in the writing process it never stays as light as I probably do in conversation. Okay. And um, and I'm not sure why that is. And it's something I'm struggling with with what I'm writing right now where I'm like, am I trying to force something into it or should I should I be forcing my way into something funnier or something sure. lighter? And I don't know. So, like, I want to mostly because I think it's a part of my personality that I haven't let come out um, in the in the writing. So, like, I run in. I'm I'm a musician. I write songs. Um, It's kind of been on the back burner for me. But I used to do shows around Mm -hmm. Madison and. Um, I write sad, depressing songs. Mm-hmm. I'm a happy guy. I love life. Um, for the most part, uh, really happy and outgoing. 
I have countless songs about death and divorce. <laughs> and uh, so, like, when I would play and, and shows. Why? What is it that grabs you about the subject? I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I, um, as a singer-songwriter, where it's just me and an acoustic guitar, I think that alone lends more towards a slower-paced song. Mm-hmm. So then a slower-paced song lends towards a sadder song. Yeah. Um, but even even my upbeat songs, I have a I, one of my favorite songs that I wrote is called um, "One More One More Lonely Christmas," mm-hmm. and it's it is my most upbeat song. That is, uh, it's called "What's What's One More Lonely Christmas," mm-hmm. and it's all about this married couple who have been going through it for years, and they. Every Christmas has sucked mm-hmm. since they've been married, and they finally get to d- decide to get divorced because what's one more lo- lonely Christmas? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to get divorced over Christmas and be lonely because they've always been lonely at Christmas. Super sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, kind of uplifting in a way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. They're making a change. And but I, see, I think that's what it is for me. Like, yeah, like this is sad. Like this song that I wrote about death mm-hmm. uh, called Slowly Dying is really sad, but like. I don't know. Like, there's something about recognizing the sadness of life. I, I, you know, I don't. I don't want to be one of those cliche guys. It's like you can't appreciate the sun without the rain. But you know, but but there is something about recognizing the sadness in life that helps you appreciate the better times. Mm-hmm. And I don't want in my day to day life recognize the sadness. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I would rather in my art be able to say, man, sometimes life is shitty and it sucks. And, and then just get it out of me that way. That yeah. way, in my day-to-day life, I can be like, hey, I'm happy. Like, mm-hmm. life is great. And, and so that was always kind of the joke at, at my show is, like, people show up and I'd say, hope you didn't come here to, like, feel good about yourself. Yeah. And, and uh, I'd get done with one song and be like, all right, this next song is also about death. So yeah, that's I hope fun. you got a lot of really funny stage patter. And then you were like, this one's called the bubonic plague. Yeah, I mean, it really was like that. So, uh, like, I consider myself to be fairly funny. So uh, part of my shows was always trying to get people to laugh because, like, I know, I'd say, listen, I know, like, this is really, I have a a song that's about uh, a friend of mine whose baby passed away, and it's a really heavy, heavy song. And so I'd say, listen, I know this is heavy, uh, and I'm up here kind of making jokes about it, but, like, I just want you to know I'm happy. I'm not going to go home and slip my wrist. I'm fine. Because I, I, early on, people would be like, hey, are you, yeah. are you okay? Like, what's going on in your life? And I'd be like, what do you mean? And they're like, well... <laughs> Yeah. Your songs, man. Like, and there's such a divorce too from the moment that you are in, or the feeling that you have to get into to write those yeah. things. And yeah. I've written some like essays that dealt with really dark subjects, and I'd be fine. Later on, people would be like, "Oh my god!" It's like, "Oh no, I was writing about a different period. Like that's done. I'm yeah. completely finished with it. You know, it's all fine." But um, you're trying to create that feeling for other people, so they're still in it. Yeah. You know. Do you think that's a unique ability to be able to divorce yourself from that? To be able to divorce myself from... Um, from what you're writing. Like, uh, I know people who mm-hmm. could not... If, if they were writing that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. would just always be dark mm-hmm. uh, their day-to-day life. They, they couldn't do it. To, I think you have to. Um, because there's a couple of things. I mean, number one, the... the mind just cannot stay in the same mode all the time. Totally. You know what I mean? We just are going to we're going to get out of it and we get acclimated to something and so we start, you know, moving on to the next thing. But also I think like you enter a certain kind of experience whether it's like especially if you're writing fiction yeah. where I've written fiction where when I stopped writing I looked around and I was really disoriented because mm. I had gotten really deeply into it. And that's rare and kind of special, but sure. um, 
when you finish something, like a door in the mind closes. You're kind of done with it. And so yeah. that's why I think when sometimes people say like, ooh, would there be a sequel? And you're like, no, that story is complete for me. Yeah. I'm not, you know, done. And I'm done with it. Yeah. And like, I love it, but it's a world and it's an enclosed world. Yeah. And um, so, and I think that just happens when you move on to the next thing, no matter what kind of creation or even any other kind of project. Totally. Yeah. Um, do you... Uh, do you ever have the, uh, please don't misunderstand me, the, the pretentious feeling of uh, this is a story that already existed in the ethos or whatever, mm, like and I'm just, me. and I'm just writing it. I'm just, I'm just putting pen to paper. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, because I am usually working harder. Um, it's rare that I'm like, ah, here it all is. And I'm just, I'm just channeling it. But I also just believe in what the brain does, sure. you know, like, so things will, it's really exciting when you get really into it, but, um, and it just feels like it's just appearing, but I never have felt like, ah, the characters just talk to me. And when I do talk that way, I know that I'm saying I'm listening to my brain. I'm giving my brain the space to come up with these ideas and I'm paying close enough attention to see the nuances, but we talk about it as if they're separate from us, Okay. which is, which is kind of pretentious. And you know, there's, I I don't mean pretentious in a bad way at all. Well, no, but I know what you mean. Like, but it always, but it does sound a little bit like that because sometimes people are, and people can use it that way where they're just sort of like oh and I just I just listen to what the characters tell me and I'm in touch with the world in a way that you probably can't understand but of, I can't of course they have that yeah. accent you know they, they do yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's sort of a Noel Coward kind of accent <laughs> but um but yeah I think it's just a way of trying to articulate like what what that feeling kind of feels like yeah and you try and chase it but you can't always get it and sometimes I, you just do the work and you know I think it's um I have had those pretentious thoughts about things I've written, songs specifically. Um, and I think uh, saying that to people, and people are like, how'd you write this song, or write this book, or this story, whatever, saying, oh, you know what, it just existed, and I, I really felt like it already existed, and I just put it down. It's a way to say it was really stinking easy for me mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. saying, hey, I'm the best ever. Mm-hmm. Um, however, <clears throat> uh, there's a songwriter named... Um, John something. He's the lead singer of Switchfoot. Uh-huh. John, man, John something. Mm-hmm. Can't remember his name. Uh, and Foreman. John Foreman. Okay. There we go. I can I can stand now. I'd like to note that he did not look that up on his phone. <laughs> Thank you. you. Uh, As if from the ether. That's right. There you go. Ether. I said ethos before. Ether. There oh, I didn't even notice, actually. Yeah. Um, so John Foreman was talking about writing songs. And, and, you know, if you're a famous songwriter or a book writer um i'm sure people are always like how did you do that where did that start like i asked you where'd your story from your nut you come from but um so he gets asked that a lot and he was talking about it in in an article and he goes you know for me um there's two ways of songwriting where you're you're building you're 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 the contractor you're the person who's drawing up the blueprints you're hammering the nails you're building this thing and he goes, and then sometimes it's like you're an archaeologist where you're uncovering this thing ex- that existed, and he goes, it's just that easy. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not saying it actually existed, you know. Mm-hmm. But it like, feels like it does. It comes to yes. you complete. And yeah. for me, the songs that I've written that have been, that I go, this is a damn good song, every single one has felt that way. Yeah. And so I wonder in the writing process of a novel, 
maybe not the whole thing, but are there portions of it that you're like, oh, of course, mm-hmm. like this is a, this is of course, it's been here all along. You know what I mean? Yeah, that can definitely happen, and it's wonderful when it does. Yeah. The problem is you can't rely only on that. You know, and as somebody who spends much of my professional life trying to get writers and trying to like teach them how to have this process and how to. Um, how to yeah. just make this thing happen? You or, can't teach somebody. Oh, you just got to let it exactly. Happen. Yeah. And, with, and well, and also with with editing, it's the exact same way. You know, you're you're working really hard to bridge the gap between what you want to say and making sure that the other person actually hears it. Sure. And um, I think that. Therefore, I get really shirty when there's too much assumption that writing, you either have it or you don't. It comes to you or it doesn't because it discounts a lot of the work. And it discounts, you know, all of the effort and the craft that goes into it. Yeah. If I gave you a hunk of wood and was like, hey, make a violin, you'd realize, yeah, there's a lot of craft involved in that. It's, you weren't just, like, waiting for the gods to come down and touch you. Sure. And it's the same with playing the violin. You know, like, you might have talent, but you had to develop it. Yeah. And and it's the same with writing. And so there's that just that part of you that, like, wants acknowledgement that this is work, um, hmm. even though there are these great periods when, like, oh, it just all comes out. But chances are, that thing is probably still going to be edited, or where what surrounds it is going to be edited is going to still require all that work. Yeah. Um, so, it's great when it happens, but that's not, it's not the only thing, and people put a little too much emphasis on it, for the same reason that we said before, like, I don't know anything about other industries, and sure. they don't know anything about mine. Yeah. So, so, why would they know what yeah. goes into it? Um, can anybody be a writer? Anybody can be a better writer. Okay. Yeah. I like the I like that answer. Because well, I think that. But do you come? I mean, I I don't know. Maybe you won't want to say this, but do you come across students or people or whatever and go just stop? <laughs> you just need like focus your energy elsewhere because yeah, just, this is not be a painter. it. This is not happening. Um, well, there's. Uh, I think that, um, like I said, anybody can be a better writer. Mm-hmm. And the difference is that when people want to take a class because they want to enjoy what it's like to be creative, they want yeah. to get better at it, they want to smooth their, um, you know, their ability to like tell a story or whatever. I can, I can totally help with that. Yeah, I cannot give you the um, the mind that comes up with a beautiful turn of phrase that sure. just invents it. That, yeah. I do think that's probably where talent falls. Um, but a lot of it is just ass and chair work. Sure. And so, it, can anybody? And also, like, what does it mean to be a writer? You know, mm-hmm. can anybody be somebody who writes and who takes pleasure and gets better and better at it? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Can anybody be a professional writer? No. It's it's a skill like any other. Not everybody can do it. Not everybody wants to do it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> not everybody looks at the hours and the wages and was like, yeah, that's worth my time. So, <laughs> you know, they're probably smarter. Do you, as a teacher, um, have the cojones to say, like, if, if you've got a student mm-hmm. who is like, you know, I want to be a professional writer, this is what I want to do. Do you have the ability as a teacher uh, to look at them and if it's the case, say you're just not going to be able to. Well, I would never make that assumption that sure. they can or cannot, but I might very likely and probably would very likely say, well, you've you got a lot of work to do. Yeah. You know, you have you may, you may be starting um, with a lot of enthusiasm, but you're not where you need to be. Yeah. And, and I don't have a problem with telling people who are getting ahead of themselves, and because that's often just sort of an ego thing when people totally. are like, you know, they haven't mastered the basics of punctuation, but they think that they are at the top of their craft. And it's yeah. like, you're not. This is, this is something that you do need to learn before you're going to get there. so I get in trouble yeah. with punctu- punctuation a lot. Yeah, I'm I, a big punctuation person. Uh, Over usage of commas for me. Ah, yes. Because I, the way I always do it is I always say if I'm writing something, I want people to read it in the way that I am saying it. Mm-hmm. So I want, I'm going to overuse commas because I pause in certain places. Maybe you need an ellipsis. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> true, but I don't know. Commas are easier. Yeah. <laughs> 
so I, I get I get yelled at about that a lot. Um, you're you're able to stay till four? Uh, yeah. How are we okay. doing? We're three fifty right now. Oh, okay. So yeah, okay. a few more minutes. So uh, I wonder about uh, true stories that you might have. If if you, I know, I'm totally putting you on the spot. Yeah, damn it. Um, you know, our our upcoming theme is puberty. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder if you have any awkward adolescent uh, stories that come to mind. Yeah. The question I suppose is which one. Um, <laughs> I think knows. that's everybody's question. I know, right? Theme. Awkward adolescence. I shudder to think. I just feel like all of my adolescence was just this weird mix of like complete self-aggrandizement. You know, sure, yeah. Like just going around like like we were talking about, just feeling like you're the star of everything and I was yeah. like I'm pretty sure I am and I had pretensions toward acting too so I think I'd go oh, around man. just like really swanning around doing a lot of stuff but now I'm like trying to think of a specific I was I was the same any? way yeah. just, uh, just thinking about total uh thinking, you know, I was it. Uh, I remember, so I've been musical my whole life, and I remember I would like write little ditties in my head, mm-hmm. or like hum them, or whatever, and uh, I started playing guitar at 11, and I remember uh, quote-unquote writing this riff, and um, I then, about four months later, heard it on the radio. <laughs> it was the opening riff to a song on the radio. Yeah. To a big number one song, and I was like... <gasps> They the, took it. The industry has bugs <laughs> yeah, in my house. You know, because, it, it, um, I mean, I didn't really think that. But, like, like things with uh, movies and TV shows, um, it, being an adult now, I know why this is because of the way that demographics work. But, like, as a kid, if I liked a show, it was successful. If mm-hmm. I didn't, it got yeah. canceled. You know, things like that. Yeah. And so, like, you think... The all-powerful Adam, I, I have control I over. Yeah, exactly. I did that again. Yeah, and so that total uh, delusion of grandeur. I've actually talked to somebody about being an entertainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain amount of, yeah. of a delusion of grandeur yeah. that you have to have. Because yeah, otherwise, you would never it. get up in, exactly. in front of people and start talking. We talked about it at the beginning. You, you have to have this certain amount of ego to say what I have to say is important, and you you want me on this stage mm-hmm. to hear what I have to say. Yeah. So I, I had a lot of that as a kid, mm-hmm. as, as an awkward whatever. Yeah, I had a weird mix of it. Like when I did, um, I'm keeping it more of childhood than puberty, but like I took piano lessons as a kid. Sure. And the, the running joke in my family is that I took the bow at the end of the recital very seriously. <laughs> and like all the other kids would do this half-assed bow and I would do this deep, very serious bow. Like, yeah. You know, and, and I didn't catch on to why it was so funny. Why, like why my neighbors would be like, now practice giving a bow, Michelle. And I'd be like, I shall. Yeah. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I... Every time, like, if I watch the Olympics, I was like, now I'll be an Olympic star. Oh, yeah. I, I, I spent I a good, Oscars, uh, be an good amount of the winter of my youth at one point. The winter after the of Olympics. my youth. There's, yeah, like, there's right. like a book title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I spent a good time after the Winter Olympics uh, in my basement, which was just an empty room for a while. In uh, in rollerblades, mm-hmm. speed skating around the basement. I was going to be a speed skater. Yeah. Or after, and did you remember the movie or the the show Fame? No. It was probably before your way time. Before it was way time. before your time. But it has an extremely <laughs> infectious opening where it's like, sure. "Fame, I'm going to live forever." And yeah. I'd be so inspired that I'd go up to my room and I'd just fling myself around doing pirouettes <laughs> and jetés, and I'd be like, "I am so, I'm light as air, goddammit. And my parents would be like, "What are you doing up there? Like, are you throwing things to the ground?" It was like, "It's my body." So yeah, it, was, it didn't. 
didn't go very well. It's it was the gap funny. between my my fantasy and reality was yeah. pretty stark. Yeah. Um, okay. So the last question I always ask my guests: Have you listened to an episode at all? I listened to yeah, like the beginning of um, okay. one of them. I didn't get through all. Oh of yeah. Them. So the last uh, question I always ask is. Uh, Okay, so I always phrase it like this. If I'm walking down the street Mm -hmm. and find a cell phone and it's your cell phone and I scroll through the contacts, Mm -hmm. who on there am I going to call? If if I see their name. Mm -hmm. Uh, So basically the question is, who's the most interesting person in your phone? Most interesting person in my phone. I may actually have to look at my phone. Oh, man. So like uh, my first guest was Tom Farley. His his answer was Quincy Jones, the music producer, Mm -hmm. and Adam Sandler. Okay. Um, I do not have Quincy Jones in my No, I figured not. Yeah. I have some famous writers in there who just ended up in my email, not because they know me at all. And I'm like, why do I have Dennis Johnson in my email? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like all the most interesting people in my phones are just like, like if I said them, they wouldn't be like, that's interesting. But that's you a know? total acceptable answer because my follow-up question is why? Mm-hmm. Why, why would you pick that person as the most interesting person? If it was just somebody I want to just go talk to and be like, what's interesting based on like the kind of stuff that we've been talking about? Like, what am I thinking about? I feel like I want to go talk to some restaurant professional or something. Sure. You know, like one of the, like Tammy Lax who owns Harvest or something or, um, and you know, was one of the ones who started the old fashioned. Like, I think she's yeah. pretty interesting because yeah. she's somebody who had a job for a long time as a forager. Her whole job was like, I go around and I find food and I bring it into restaurants. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so, um, I didn't know that was a job. It was. Yeah. Wow. And it's probably more of one now. Yeah. So like that pops into my head. Yeah. Um, but then I have to say I think almost all, everybody in my phone is pretty interesting just because they're all kind of fascinating weirdo people. because they're in your phone they're in my phone they have me in common <laughs> but no right. just because like they're all people that like when you sit and talk to them it turns out they've got all this expertise and all yeah. the stuff that I know nothing about and you can usually just like grab one of them and be like tell me about marketing and then yeah. it turns out my friend Tom can tell me all about marketing and, sure you know the story of a band-aid and all that stuff yeah so so that's not really an answer to your question no it, you know what but, it, is, it is an answer because I, I can totally relate you know the most interesting people in my phone is, is growing the more I do this show mm-hmm. uh, uh, just from guests and I was actually just uh, I think saying to Ashley last night um, I get the opportunity as a relatively young person I mean not even relatively if you're in your 20s you're a young person mm-hmm. um, uh, to get to talk to people who are older than me and have had way more life experience and are all interesting and learn mm-hmm. like the totally glean and learn just for an hour and a half and, and you know I'm not going to learn anything to change the world by or anything but um and just totally get this opportunity to sit and listen and hopefully contribute a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the the interesting people in my phone have grown a lot in the last two months just well, from doing this. And it kind of goes back to, like, the story slam idea where it's just, like, you don't know where the interest will come from. Totally. You know, it's often not where you think yeah. that it will be from. It's not necessarily from somebody who is famous who may be the most vapid, boring person in the world because nobody makes them be interesting anymore. You know? Yeah. It might be, like, the guy next to you at the table yeah. who it turns out has some crazy, fascinating family story that sure. you've never heard. So. Yeah, totally. 
All right. Well, uh, we're going to wrap it up a little bit. Uh, again, our guest has been Michelle Wilgen. Uh, that's W-I-L-D-G-E-N. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you can uh, you can go to www.madisonwriters.com. Mm-hmm. Or michellewilgen.com. All right. Yeah, and then find books on Amazon and mm-hmm. things? Sure. In bookstores? Anywhere you buy books, you can buy find books? them or get them. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Uh, again, I would suggest that you, uh, if you're not a reader, be a reader and read the books. But Yeah. I like but, that. If you're not a reader, be a reader. Yeah. And, and stop. Yeah. <laughs> but at the very least, see the movie You're Not You. That was it was really good. Uh, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's been yeah, a lot of fun. Absolutely. Feel free to if you ever have anything that you need to come on and plug if you want. I'm always looking for more guests. Excellent. Um, got to take care of some business here. Uh, Again, uh, first I want to thank Michelle again, and then also thank JPH for letting us be here. Um, our next story slam, uh, the theme is puberty. That will be at Johnson Public House, which is 908 East Johnson Street. Uh, sign up starts at 6, stories start at 7. And uh, just so you know, last time we had over 80 people here, and all of the seats were taken by 6.30. So if you're going to come, come early if you want a place to sit. Otherwise, it's standing room only. Um, my guest next week is Scott Gordon who um, writes uh, Tone uh, Tone Madison, I think it's called. Uh, this is a terrible outro, guys. I'm sorry. Tone Madison. Uh, they, they write about music and, and uh, entertainment in Madison. It's great. Check them out. Um, but, yeah, that'll be next week. Again, Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Hopefully I'll see you at the next story slam. Absolutely.